his mind. And here is your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening. Also, thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and which, and you can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find her at TarotByGinger.com, and she's a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And that is at TarotByGinger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Ken. Oh, I'm not sure how I forgot, I forgot how to pronounce your last yeah. name. Is it Goodsword or yeah. Goods? Goodsword is pretty close enough, yeah. And he is the author of a bunch of books, but what is the one we're talking about today? Uh, today is a pretty new book. It just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's called Fermi's Paradox is Bullshit. All right. And what's and, it about? Uh, the subtitle. So the subtitle is kind of the more of where you get the uh, what what it's about. Um, it is the uh, the evidence for extraterrestrial life. Uh, my favorite topic, man. My favorite yeah. topic. You know. Yeah. Because I think there is so much evidence. So much. Um, yeah, there's a ton of evidence. Um, I was like, I was actually really surprised because. Um, I actually have not really been um, a UFO believer for a long time, um, but kind of always curious about it. And um, so when I started researching for this book, I wasn't really sure if I would f- like what my, what I might find or, or how much evidence there, there might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was shocked at uh, just how much evidence there is that... Um, uh, not, not so much, uh, you know, for the existence of life, uh, out there, because I'm looking at, um, uh, sort of the scientific evidence in terms of what we've, what we've discovered and what has gone into the, the body of knowledge that we like to call science. And mm-hmm. so I was, I was looking into a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, some theoretical stuff like panspermia and things like that. Um, but also really mostly focusing on, um, just the, the kind of the, the stuff that we know that we know. And so these are things like, is there water in space? Um, are there, are there exoplanets that are capable of sustaining life? Um, these kinds of questions. Mm. So do you think that there was ever life on Mars? Uh, there, there actually appears to still be life on Mars, mm. uh, because in 1974, NASA landed on the Martian surface and they did uh, a, a few different experiments. But three of those experiments were specifically designed to look for uh, not only traces of, of biological material, 
but mm-hmm. actually traces of biological activity. Um, so what they were actually doing was um, injecting uh, various compounds into the Martian soil and then seeing what, <coughs> if anything, might happen. And uh, they were looking for signs of, of uh, metabolic activity. And on all three of the experiments that they had designed, they they had success. Like basically, the result was, yeah, there's uh, there's mm-hmm. there's activity here um, happening because of the uh, like not necessarily that there was anything, but because of what they injected, um, it kind of woke up whatever was uh, sleeping down there. I'll, I'm using these terms a little bit loosely, but. Yeah, you know how like on on Earth we're used to uh, like we we know that we breathe oxygen and we mm-hmm. uh, you know discharge carbon dioxide and plants do the opposite. So some of their experiments were based on that kind of a thing where they they put uh, oxygen into the into the ground um, and just to see what would happen. And sure enough, carbon dioxide came out, or you know vice versa. They tried a couple of different um, different right. uh, factors in terms of um, trying to trigger different metabolic activity, but all three of the experiments came out um, with with positive results. And um, the 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 two people who were in charge of designing those experiments were, of course, ecstatic and uh, almost in disbelief that their experiment worked. Um, but they they weren't allowed to go public with the results. Why not? Or even with the fact that they that they even tried this. Wow. So the whole thing was kind of brushed under the rug. Mm. Why? And then the question would be, if that happened, why did NASA wait for uh, 50 years until they went back? Right. So we're only now starting to come back back around to that, and I think um, it'll be in the next uh, couple of years we're gonna have uh, we're gonna have boots on the ground on Mars. Um, certainly, certainly in terms of uh, ro- robotic, uh, more experiments. I mean, we already have Mars rover, and and who knows what they're finding there, and maybe they're still not telling us some of mm-hmm. the that stuff because you know if they could do it back in 74 uh it would be pretty easy to replicate those same um experiments uh on the mars rover Hmm. so one has to wonder you know have they really not thought about that like (laughs) they thought about it don't worry they thought a lot about it (laughs) yeah exactly you know i I think Personally, there might have even been intelligent life on Mars. I think it's even possible that we came from Mars because Mars is a smaller planet and has less gravity on it. So, therefore, it probably would have been more – it would have been better for bipedal development. On Earth, the gravity is stronger, so we see a lot of four-legged animals here, but – we're the only two-legged bipedal animal here, so which tells me that we may have come from a planet with less gravity. Yeah, that's true. I never thought of thought of it like that, but I mean, it's possible. Um, another another interesting fact around that is that um, 
many uh, now this is this is now another thing that's in the body of knowledge in in terms of what we scientifically know is that uh, asteroids and comets which are by the way all like always bombarding us usually they burn up in the atmosphere but um it's not it's not exactly rare uh for these for small objects mm-hmm. to come flying in from space and uh for traces of those um whatever compounds are 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 in those um asteroids and whatnot to end up in either in our atmosphere or even trickling down onto onto the ground right. so um it's been uh it's now like scientifically established that this is happening and this has been happening like for the for you know four and a half billion years since we've been here um you can just take a look at the moon the reason there's so many craters is because of the exact same effects um our atmosphere saves us uh from a lot of that damage um, but so does our ocean because uh, i mean 70 percent of our surface is ocean um Another pretty big percentage is like uninhabited uh, forest and mountains and stuff like that. So uh, it it would actually be pretty rare for one of those, um, an incoming object to land anywhere where we even notice it, um, unless we're, you know, using radar or things like that. Um, So these things are always shooting. And and we've been in the last... uh, couple of decades we've been noticing that gee these things um firstly they have a lot of water in them um and science has come to the conclusion that actually all the water on earth has come from these uh types of objects uh because originally uh, when the earth was forming of course it's too hot for water to stick around um and so eventually when the earth cooled well the water had already evaporated off, so mm-hmm. we, there was very little water in terms of when uh, when Earth solidified. Um, and uh, the reason we have so much now is that it's just been coming in um, primarily from comets. Um, and another thing that that we've been finding in these comets and asteroids and meteors is um, organic material. Yeah. So I want to be clear, it's not necessarily fossils or... Uh, not direct evidence of like, um, you know, uh, fossilized material or or even um, life forms per se, uh, but we're talking about bio- biological material mm-hmm. in terms of organic count compounds, um, hydrocarbons, um, and kind of the building blocks that DNA is made out of. So. We haven't actually been able to pull any DNA out of any of these things yet, yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I strongly suspect that at some point we will. Um, uh, and the other interesting fact is that um, some of the meteors that land on Earth uh, have actually come from Mars. And how, how can that happen is that uh, if a large chunk of debris is floating through space and smashes into a planet, of course, it's going to create a, a large, um, uh, co- uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, suddenly lost the word, you know, the divot. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, so when all that stuff is thrown out in, into the air, mm-hmm. 
it can also uh, leave crater. That's what I'm trying to yeah. think of. So uh, if there's a large enough crater, all the all the soil that was there previously has now gone somewhere else, mm-hmm. and a lot of times it falls back down. But if it gets a, a strong enough trajectory, it could just fly right out into space, and that actually does happen. So we've uh, we've we've conclusively found some meteors that have landed on Earth that that were actually Mars rock. Hmm. So. Even if there was only a very tiny microscopic life forms, um, that's one way that they could get between planets. Right? Yeah, yeah. Do you think if, if if that type of theory, like a panspermia type of idea, um, yeah, is is what created life here? Do you think it was random, or do you think it was intentional? Uh, I don't really think there's any way of knowing that, except for the fact that, um, so I'll say in terms of like, um, originally how life got here, uh, probably, probably an accident because it's probably everywhere. It's probably just flying uh-huh. all over the place, going everywhere. Um, and, and I can get back to that, um, uh, that idea later that we're finding it like in between stars, like in, in, in the interstellar space, there's there's biological material. Like it's literally everywhere. Um, but uh, even if even if it were random to begin with, uh, there does seem to be some evidence. And this is a little bit beyond the scope of uh, this particular book. Um, but there is a, actually evidence that um, somewhere along the way. Uh, in, specifically in human evolution, um, there appears to be certain events that uh, that would really strongly lead one to think that there was some intelligent design behind it. Um, so not not to say, you know, there was a god that created uh, people out of dust. I mean, not completely discounting that either. But uh, what the evidence. Um, indicates is more of the idea that there were uh, there were creatures here that whose um, who were anatomically or and genetically altered with um, through genetic manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, there's some really really inter- really like fascinating um, stuff uh, evidence for that. Um, uh, I was just reading an article from, um, can't think of the guy's name. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's a fellow out of England who, uh, who is um, publishing a series of articles on his Substack. And, um, so it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, I wish I could remember the guy's name. Um, but yeah, like the, one of the big things is this: um, the fact that humans only have 23 pairs of chromosomes, mm-hmm. um, which is strange because the our closest ancestors, <clears throat> the apes, uh, have 24 pairs. And so there's there's this idea that at some point, somehow the two of the genes merge together, um, and so that was sort of a, an idea that people were interested in um now that they've been looking into it like the if you google um 
a human chromosome two, um, and look in the Wikipedia there, it's it's got um, like this has nothing to do with people making uh, theories about how um, <laughs> you know how human life is being altered, but the but in that page they actually bring up the fact that it almost looks as though it was because it's there's some some aspects of the this large chromosome that are really strange like it almost looks like somebody surgically removed parts of it uh because there's the two original ones that we can still track in the ape population mm-hmm. um and then you compare that to the human chromosome 2 and yeah, like 80% of it is the same, but then there's parts missing that should be there. Like if they simply uh, merged by accident, uh, accidental, uh, you know, evolutionary normal kind of means where there's, um, you know, stuff happens, stuff changes. Uh, but this looks, this looks more intentional somehow. Um, you really got to wonder. This also sort of ties in with, again, with the sort of the more religious side of things, because every, um, everyone who believes in a super (coughs) higher power or, you know, a superhuman uh, uh, being of some kind, um, generally credits them with creating us. Um, but how do you, uh, how do you make that jive with the fact that, you know, we've been here for a really long time um, and we can see evolution. Uh, there's, there's tons of evidence that, you know, evolution happens. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that it is the ultimate cause of life, uh, but evolution happens. So, um, so if some Supreme being created uh, life, um, they would have done so at a very early stage, and then we can see how everything has evolved since then. Um, but the only other explanation is that maybe they did that, and then maybe they also interceded uh, at a much later date, and we're messing around with uh, with the genes. Um, this also is uh, strongly indicated in the Sumerian mythologies, which is... Uh, actually the earliest um, human writing that we have like those are the those are the earliest stories that we have know of right. that we still can access um, I've, I've done a couple of books on that uh, as well I have a a translation um, of the Enuma Elish and I'm working on the Atrahasis epic and in in the Atrahasis epic they um, the god Enki and uh, some of his workers uh, actually take some clay and they, they spit on it and add their DNA to it and uh, put it into what appears to be um, like a, a sort of a, a biological, like a womb, but an artificial womb of some kind uh, with using some kind of technology. Right. And um, like, it's literally, that's, that's what the story is about. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how they could even um, imagine such things 6,000 years ago. Yeah, it's not like they had incubators, right? <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. And yet that's exactly what they're talking about. Um, and they're, they're actually more technologically advanced than what we currently have av available to us because uh, we do not currently have um, an artificial womb technology. We, if we make test tube babies, uh, you know, we can fertilize an egg, but we still have to implant it into yeah. a human uh, womb. So um, they, whatever, however they were doing it, uh, they're, they're at a level that we have not quite yet achieved, although I think we're getting close. Yeah, I'm, 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 I wouldn't even say close. I mean, I guess is that if we're, we're able to think of it, we're probably doing it somewhere, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, that's true. It's possible. There's, there's actually, um, there was some claims floating around on the internet that it is being, being done right now. Uh, my research into that, uh, showed that that was most likely a fraud, but, you know, it's, it's always possible. Yeah. And, and even cloning, Cloning is like a weird, weird thing, you know, because once you create a clone and it goes out into the world, it doesn't know it's a clone. And then that clone right. starts reproducing these other weird clones or hybrid clones or whatever. And none of them are even aware of what they are. Like, how, how would they yeah. know? How would I, how I could be a clone and not know it. You could be a clone yeah, you could. and not know it. We don't you know. Could. And, and clo our cloning technology is pretty good. Like, we, um, we're we're, all, we're currently doing, um, I, I want to say we're doing cloning work, but that's that's not going to necessarily give the right impression uh, because we're doing it in a very limited capacity, uh, like in terms of we can clone an organ uh, for transplant or you know things like that. But be, the only reason we haven't cloned a full embryo is uh, because of. Um, moral and ethical uh uproar that would occur like basically you're not you're not allowed to but right. yeah you know what publicly I'm just be <laughs> yeah somebody's got to be doing it <laughs> um i mean for sure i can almost guarantee that you can um uh that there's a a, a lab a dark lab somewhere in 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 china or hong kong or someplace where you can uh, get custom-made babies. I'm absolutely, uh, like, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that that's a reality. There's nothing nothing technical stopping it. It's uh, just legal issues. Right. Or some guy in his garage or a storage unit or whatever. Well, know. yeah. I mean, now now with the CRISPR technology, a lot of people are, are uh, able to do these kinds of things. Um, I don't know how much of an investment it would take to do a whole cloning lab. But there are people who literally in their, in their living rooms, uh, you know, or on their, on their dining room table or whatever, um, who are doing genetic manipulation on themselves. Mm -hmm. um, there was a guy who was uh, working on trying to make himself glow in the dark. Um, he, so he was <laughs> he started doing it with his dogs and um, he had some success. Uh, so, like, there's lots of weird stuff going on. Um, and a, a CRISPR kit, uh, I believe you can get a CRISPR um, kind of an intro kit for about 200 bucks, And that's enough to get going on uh, doing your own DNA manipulation. Mm. I don't know. 
Makes me want to try it now. See if I can make a. It does make myself phosphorescent. <laughs> exactly. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of trial and error, and it's going to take up a lot of time. So yeah. even though it's not like super expensive to get into, um, in order to, I think, to have any success, you're going to really need to commit to it and spend a ton of time messing around with that stuff. Um, but that's what a lot of people are doing, and it's become kind of a new hobby. Um, there was a documentary that I watched on it. Uh, I can't remember um, where I saw it. It might have been on Netflix even. Um, but, yeah, just some of the stuff that, that's going on, you're just – it's it's almost unbelievable. And, right. you know, 50 years ago, we wouldn't have even imagined such a thing. Right. And if we're able to do that now, there's definitely no reason to – think that advanced soci- advanced extraterrestrial societies in the past were doing it and did it here because there's Absolutely. no evidence of the missing link i mean that's the thing yeah. like there, there's this darwin's theory does show there's yeah i believe that evolution happens or i kind of refer to the word adaptability because life is always going to yeah. adapt that's why it's resilient and keeps going right you know. For sure, absolutely. Adaptation definitely happens, 100%. You can't argue with that. Um, there are some other parts of uh, of Darwinian theory that are less, um, maybe less robust. For example, survival of the fittest. Well, it is true. I mean, generally, yeah, sure. The, the, if there's, um, it kind of depends on how much pressure there is in terms of, um, yeah, you know, like uh, competition for resources and what, what, what not. So, but right now, um, I would you could almost argue that uh, our our current um, econ- economy, I suppose, is one way to say it, um, because really, like literally, everybody can survive. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously not. There's there's still medical concerns and things like that, but. In terms of just um, uh, how easy it is to survive on planet Earth right now for humans, um, it almost negates the whole concept of survival of the fittest because it's now survival of everybody uh, or you know, <clears throat> survival of um, whoever happens to... I, I don't even know, like... <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's not quite exactly how how Darwin envisioned not, uh, the process. To not at all. There's there's a piece though. I was watching something not too long ago about Darwin's theory, and I guess his paper was combined with another guy. I think his name was Warren. I'm not sure what this guy's name was. Oh yeah. And and he had like you know a different spin on it, sort of where he was looking more at manipulation and. And higher consciousness, and um, I don't know, like uh, what is it? Intelligent design, right? You know, but well, it, but it was okay, taken so, out of Darwin's paper because it wasn't considered. It wasn't good. It was too outlandish or too you know far out for them to publish as an academic type of paper. So they didn't put it in. Yeah, but it right. was part of the wonder, original. I wonder if they would have been able to leave it in today. I mean, <laughs> the academy is still very closed-minded, but I, I think we're starting to make some progress. I think um, so too. But you know, 
another interesting fact is uh, Francis Crick, uh, who, of course, was one of the co-discoverers, and I use the term loosely, I guess, um, of DNA. But basically, Crick and, and his colleague Watson um, essentially wrote the book on DNA. Um, and uh, they, I mean, I think people had, had already been investigating it, but they... Um, they made like a crucial step forward and were able to uh, describe how it works and how it's made and all that stuff. Um, so I would say um, it's not certainly not a stretch to say that Francis Crick was one of the 10 greatest biologists of all time, uh, maybe top five, maybe top two, you know, mm-hmm. um, and he uh he stated publicly on on the record that um, uh, from what he know, from what he knows about DNA, which is like pretty much everything, um, he did he did not he didn't feel that it was possible for DNA to um, evolve on Earth uh, in the two point four billion years that that was available to it. Mm. Um, so he felt that it would it would take a lot longer to evolve something as complicated as DNA. Um, so therefore, his uh, his conclusion was uh, that of panspermia that life came uh, at, a, at an already um, somewhat advanced state, uh, probably already with DNA intact uh, when when life arrived on Earth. Um, so. Who knows? Maybe it was somewhere else for ten billion years, um, and where that may may have been enough time to uh, to evolve DNA. Right. Uh, but he didn't feel that two and a half billion years was nearly long enough. And also, you know, one of the things too now is you know we're familiar with carbon based life, but right. now there's evidence too of non carbon life. Life too that they found like at the volcanic vents at the bottom of the ocean. Now they found these other type of life form that's like sulfur based. Yeah, well, so with those guys, they they're still carbon based. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 thermal vents in the bottom of the Atlantic and Pacific. Um, yeah, but you're you're right. They use different metabolisms, um, and so they are. Uh, they are quite unlike um, any animals or plants that that, that we can kind of relate to, um, but still they're using a, a carbohydrate uh, basis in terms of the structure. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean other other uh, other types of life forms have been certainly proposed and theorized. Uh, such as replacing carbon with silicon, for example, um, which is interesting because um, silicon being kind of what we usually make computers out of uh, gives it a little bit of an interesting twist. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's one, to, one thing to wonder about um, software becoming alive, but uh, what if the hardware somehow becomes alive too? Uh, right. Or, Again, though, maybe that's already happened. Maybe we are an example of uh, um, of an instance where the both the software and the hardware came alive. 
um, because we have this, we seem to have this vast disconnect between our body and our mind or our spirit, if you want to say that. Or, you know, there's these various different ways of thinking of ourselves, um, some of which are more embodied than others, uh, but there still seems to be this, uh, this layer of software on top of hardware that is taking place in not not only in humans but in, in animals um, in life in general really huh i've never heard that idea before it's a pretty good one i never thought about that yeah. that we're maybe some type of computer or well, yeah, with the yeah, software I mean, and hardware like essentially, um, once you once you go down the rabbit hole of biology, which I mean, admittedly, I'm not a biologist, but uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm I have enough of a background in in physics and chemistry and um, and other things, philosophy and metaphysics and stuff like that, uh, that that has driven me to do um, a little bit of research into the biological side because it's quite fascinating. Um, to think of all of these different fields, you know, and we usually think of them as being disparate uh, fields, and uh, they don't necessarily work together. Well, they all work together to make everything happen, um, but there's not really a lot of um, kind of interaction between the fields themselves. But it's odd, because if you think about um, what is chemistry, well, chemistry is how uh, how elements interact with each other. Well, elements are um, like es essentially atoms. Mm -hmm. So when you start getting into the lower levels of chemistry, you're actually getting into physics. Um, and uh, atom, you know, atoms are held together by the physical laws. Uh, so you've got physics in the basement, and then your ground floor is uh, sort of chemistry, and then first floor on uh, then you've got, you know, you go up a level and you get into uh, biochemistry. Then uh -huh. you go up another level and you're into biology. And then you go up a level and you're into um, metabolisms. And But again, it's very chemistry, uh, but it's it's a biological process. So um, it's it's quite interesting that, you know, you can look at one thing, life, on all these different levels or layers and you think about them differently, uh, but they're all they're all true. They're all happening. Um, so then let's go up another layer, and then you get into um, the mind body problem. And this is often something that is seen as a philosophical idea or possibly a debate. Um, but it's not purely philosophical because it's based on. Uh, the biology and the chemistry and the physics all the way down. Um, and we do see that um, our, let's say, for example, our brain chemistry uh, affects our behavior and our, um, uh, maybe our, our diet affects our brain chemistry. So our, our behavior and our biology and our chemistry are interacting with each other um, in a sort of a cyclical way. Uh, and so these things also uh, affect our thought processes. 
and our thought processes affect our uh, behavior. So again, you've got these things that are uh, looping back into back in on each other. Um, and so if you change your thought process, you can theoretically change your biology. Um, I mean, I mean, it's true. It it takes more than simply just thinking differently, right. it, but the thinking differently drives the different behavior. Um, but again, that process works both ways. So your the the biochemistry that's going on inside your body also affects your thoughts. Um, and you know, this is something that's kind of more. Um, uh, I guess people have been thinking about it more in, in terms of mental health uh, mm. in more recent years is that, you know, we can see that uh, certain types of substances will, will have uh, negative effects on our, on our well-being um, and, and also positive effects too. So, you know, we can, we can play around with that stuff. Um, but, the an, another thing that's really fascinating about biology that I don't think um, is really being uh, being taught until you get into very quite advanced biology at the university level at least, mm -hmm. um, and this is the idea that uh, inside every cell, uh, so you, we're made out of cells, and um, there's different kinds of cells, but in our body. So we have a muscles, muscle cells that make up our, you know, our, the main uh, parts of our body. There's fat cells, there's skin cells. There's, uh, diff each organ has different cells. Um, but literally we're just this uh, huge collection of billions <coughs> of cells inside every one of those cells, um, which is, you can kind of think of it like a, like a balloon almost, or like a water balloon. Uh, basically, um, but there, it's not just full of water. It's full of water and floating around in that water. There's these little guys and there literally are living creatures inside each of your cells. Um, they don't, they're not living independently, uh, because they're in a symbiotic relationship with both everything else that's in the cell and as well as your entire body right. and nutrients are being passed back and forth. Energy is being passed back and forth. Um, I know in, in high school they teach you about mitochondria, which uh -huh. is one of these little guys. Uh, but they really dumb it down, and they just say that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. They act as though it's a battery. They uh -huh. act as though it's not alive. Uh, but the mitochondria is, in fact, a living being with its very own DNA, that is not human DNA. These mitochondria, there are hundreds of them in each cell of your body. So it's not like one cell with a battery in it. That's completely missing <clears throat> the way they're teaching it. Um, so mitochondria are, are swimming around in there. And there's also a whole bunch of other ones, different, uh, different kinds, like lots of different kinds. In ge the generalized term for it is organelles. Um, but if you get into higher level biology, they actually teach you that uh, these organelles um, evolved from uh, the basically they were once freestanding life forms 
um, that and they entered into a symbiotic relationship with each other. Um, so you can think about like a, just a microbe or like an amoeba or something like that. And, you know, they used to just go around eating each other, which is fine. Uh, but then one day they decide one of them uh, ate one and decided, hey, instead of digesting this guy, I'm just going to like make him work for me. So I'm going to keep him alive. I'm going to keep feeding him. And he's going to he's going to be my power generator. So uh-huh. that's essentially what what's happening is in the case of the mitochondria. Uh, exactly. They, um, you know, the cell that's inside the, the cell that's wrapped around the mitochondria uh, is benefiting because the mitochondria is the only uh, type of living being that can actually use oxygen. So when we say that humans breathe oxygen, and, well, we do breathe it. I mean, it's going right. into our lungs. Uh, but we actually cannot uh, metabolize oxygen. Um, well, we can, but it, we have it like there's other ways of doing it, but they're they're not very effective. Uh, but the mitochondria <clears throat> has, a, uh, has an extremely effective mat- metabolic pathway for oxygenation. Now, oxygenation, of course, is uh, a term from chemistry. And so, again, biology and chemistry are all intertwined, and oxygen is is a piece from physics. So all of these things are, like, interplaying at all these different levels, um, and the the mitochondria are are basically, um, you could think of them as being enslaved, if you want, um, or you could just think that they're in a partnership, and, I mean, everybody's getting a good deal. The mitochondria get to live and reproduce. But guess what? They also reproduce inside of each inside of ourselves. Right. Uh, they reproduce independently. So when our cells uh, divide, uh, they divide with it, but they also uh, divide independently of our own cell division with their own DNA. So it's super weird. Like this is all happening <laughs> inside of us. Right. Now you We're also our own got, universe of life. Exactly. It's, it's so our own weird. universe. And there's all these alien life forms that are not human. Um now let's go back to the idea of uh where does um uh you know, where does the mind come from? Uh-huh. Is it possible that uh that these Little guys that are inside of us also are thinking. Um, well, it's theoretically possible. Like, how, how could we know or not? Um, however, this is where it gets super weird, is that um, in, in recent years, there's been work done uh, studying, um, like, slime molds and other kinds of very, very simple, like, bacteria and things like this. And um, basically trying to determine if they have any intelligence whatsoever. And the answer is yes, they, they do. So, like, I'm not saying that they can solve a math puzzle, but they can, they're able to make in, it, what seem to be intelligent choices uh, that they're able to, like, optimize uh, their growth patterns towards food supplies and things like this. So somehow... Uh, not only are they, are they making decisions, but they're making decisions based on um, some kind of remote sensing that they're somehow able to do. Like they, 
bacteria can actually tell that uh, there's more food over on this side than on that side. Right. How the heck do they do it uh, with, without even being there? They can sense it. Huh. Um, so these are the kinds of things that we're now starting to discover. And it's like, well, if bacteria are smart enough to do that, um, maybe mitochondria are, are, are also sort of smart. And so maybe um, having a billion or, you know, tens of billions or hundreds of billions <coughs> of intelligent mitochondria and other intelligent life forms that make up my body, maybe that's why I have intelligence. Right. Because it's near really just a combination of the community effects um, of those uh, smaller intelligences. I wonder sometimes if intelligence is a result of biology in my brain or is intelligence or thoughts actually I'm just receiving it like a radio. Yeah, that's totally possible or it could be both. I mean... Um, maybe, maybe every cell in your body is intelligent, uh, and is able to communicate to somehow to this, uh, sort of overarching thing that you think of as yourself. Uh And maybe we're somehow sensing the, uh, the communication from all of these other parts. Yeah. Stuff is so weird, man. It's like, you know, I I don't know how people can be alive and not be fascinated by the fact that we're alive <laughs> and yeah. having this experience. It's the strangest thing. It's wild, man. It really is. It's bizarre. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it, like we think about like one of the stories I've heard about, like back to sort of like the UFO thing is mm-hmm. it was sort of an outrageous story. It was like, I think it was, I don't know who it was. It was like one of those my labs type of stories or something about somebody who went and was taken to see a UFO and, when they touched the UFO, they discovered that the UFO itself was alive and organic itself. So that these extraterrestrials are traveling inside another living thing, which makes perfect yeah. sense, really. It kind of does. Like, I think maybe we're doing it wrong. Like, <laughs> trying to build stuff out of metal. Um, maybe that's not the way to go. Um Okay, so there's this other weird theory that isn't exactly um, 100% like basis based on reality, really, maybe, but also kind of is. Um, so there's this idea that, you know, um, what about octopuses? They're like freaking weird, man. They're so unlike one. anything else, one. right? Yeah, they're crazy. Yeah. We don't know about their DNA. De- they're but, weird. They don't have the very word DNA or anything. They're just bizarre i mean so what if though think about think about if um if a, if you took a human and that you took an octopus and uh let's throw in a tardigrade you know tardigrades no what is that oh okay so tardigrades are these tiny little um you can barely see them they look they're like the size of a, a speck right uh-huh. um but they they're fascinating creatures they have they they almost look like mammals um, they don't look like insects. Um, they're, they're, they look more like a pig or a bear. Uh, but they have six legs. But again, they look like a mammal. They uh-huh. look like a, almost like a person with six arms. Um, and the weird thing about them is that they can survive uh, in 
um, complete dehydration. Like they'll just kind of shrink up. And then next time there's water available, they just come back to life. Huh. Um, there's actually tardigrades on the moon right now uh, because the Japanese uh, lander that was there a couple years ago accidentally spilled them. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is hilarious. So is there life on the moon? Yes, absolutely there is. We put it there. Uh -huh. um, there may have already been life there. I, I don't know. Uh, but um, so if you took a, a human and a tardigrade and an octopus and just kind of threw them out into space, um, give them a trajectory, say, let's send them towards Mars. Uh -huh. Which ones are going to survive the trip? Well, definitely not the humans. <laughs> right? right? I mean, probably not the octopus either, no. but I give the octopus a way better chance than the human. <laughs> and the tardigrades are going to have no problem. They're just going to land on Mars and go, hey, okay, that was a fun trip. It's crazy. Yeah. Huh. I wonder if we could do that to ourselves. With our, with that, you know, like, like the guy who has that DNA manipulation, <laughs> he can turn himself yeah. into something like that, you know, figure out a way that we could live without water or dehydrate down, sort of go into a, a homeostasis type of state. And then when yeah. we get where we're going, it's just like add water, <laughs> like sea monkeys. Uh, you know what? <laughs> it's probably possible because when you think about it, the difference between a tardigrade and a human, in terms of DNA, um, I don't know that I haven't actually researched that, but um, I did hear a stat uh, one time, something about like between all life, like every single thing that's alive uh, only has, I think that they were saying that they're like 95% uh, the same DNA. Maybe 95% right. is a little too high, uh, but I'm pretty sure that was the statistic I heard. So let's say let's say maybe that's way off. Maybe it's maybe it's fifty percent. Um, but then already you're talking about the, such a huge range of life. So we're talking about um, you know bacteria's and even viruses um, because viruses have DNA. Yeah. Although they might be actually artificial. <clears throat> I'm not sure if viruses are actually natural or if they were designed. Um, but uh, let's let's say that uh, that everything with DNA is has uh, like maybe fifty percent of the same DNA. Well, tardigrades are actually not that much different from us. They they kind of look uh, like in terms of physiology, they're sort of similar. So <clears throat> maybe the, they're going to be definitely higher than fifty, uh, maybe maybe seventy five. And I think I'm being very conservative because right, I really right. I, I think you're kind of right with that ninety five number. I think I've seen that I somewhere think it's else. 95. I think you're right. I think it's ninety five. <laughs> I think so, so too. So let's let's say ninety five. So if if everybody is ninety five percent the same, and a tardigrade is is way more similar to us than it is to a virus, um, then maybe that puts the tardigrade at ninety eight percent. So there's only a two percent difference of DNA that allows him to be able to do that trick where he can just dry up and float through space without a care in the world. And between us who will be like, ah, you know, <laughs> so there's, that's 2% difference. So 
Absolutely. I think that that is the key here is that realizing that all of that DNA that's in in that tardigrade is also in us. Huh. Unless it's, of course, in that 2%. That's interesting because, like, that can make, like, you know, human survival different. You know what I mean? We can take, Very like, different. dehydrated humans, throw them out into space, and just let them go. Eventually, they're going to land somewhere where there's water. Eventually. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, that's sort of the the concept that, you know, that, that we're – I'm not going to say that anybody's seriously considering it at this point, but I mean, that's such a sci-fi staple, the idea of the generation ship where you're, you know, you're in cryosleep yeah. and, you know, it takes you, who cares if it takes a million years to get across the, wherever you're, wherever you're going, uh, be, as long as your ship doesn't completely break down, mm-hmm. which of course is a big if, um, but yeah, maybe if we had a, a ship that was made out of tardigrades. But think about it. I mean, I mean, we're like, what, 90-some percent, 90% of water, right? So you, you take a human, right, yeah. dehydrate them down, there's only 5% of you left, so you're, it's like you're a pebble. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like throwing a bunch of pebbles. You, you just throw them out in space loose mm-hmm. and just let them float around until they hit something. Maybe that's how we got here. Maybe, Yeah. So <laughs> it's interesting. Then we would still have that tardy grade structure, though, wouldn't we? We, we should have that still ability, or well, maybe it went away. Well, but we do. That's that's what I'm uh, saying. Is we still have the DNA that codes for it. Um, it's just that those particular switches are turned off, or or look at a different way. Uh, we have we have those switches turned on. We have different switches. Whatever I'm trying to say, you know. You know, you change things, it changes uh-huh. what stuff, what happens. Add so, water, different switches come on, take away the water, different switches go off, uh, new switches go back on. Yeah. So we're, it's quite possible to think of um, DNA as like a fully programmable computer. Um, right now, uh, most of the DNA that we, that scientists have like examined, they're calling it junk DNA yeah. because they don't know what it does. It doesn't mean it doesn't do anything. It means that we don't know what it does, which means that in every animal and every species of life that we've looked at, uh, we have not been able to um, really to necessarily put a um, uh, like a function assigned to that particular chunk of DNA. Um but that doesn't mean it doesn't do anything at all. I right, mean, right? Maybe hey, all that other DNA did, is like for adaptability in other planets to other life environments. Yeah, I mean, almost anything is possible when it comes to DNA because it's extremely programmable and uh, e- extremely untapped. In that, um, only five percent of it is is stuff that we know what it does. So, if you have a laptop and you're running 5% of, you're using 5% of your disk space and 5% of your memory and 5% of your bandwidth, that thing could be doing a, a whole lot more um, just because you don't have all that other stuff loaded, right? Um, so think of all the other things that we just don't have loaded in our DNA. They're there. They're they're nascent. Right. Uh, like they're essentially, they're, they're ready to be turned on. 
but we don't know what to do. We don't know how to turn them on. Um, except that this is where it back to the guys in their basement again, is these guys are starting to try to figure some of this stuff out. Um, so I think we're really on a cusp um, in terms of what we're going to discover in the next, say, 50 years in terms of biology. Um, it's it's going to be very fascinating. I hope that, um, you know, I hope that the, that the people who know what they're doing are going to pay attention to the people who are just playing around with this stuff because they could learn a lot from them. Yeah. They're trying new things, right? Yeah, and all this stuff, like, too, like you said, it's, and I've never really thought about this model before and how it's all built on top of each other. You know, we have, like, quantum physics, then you have physics, then you have chemistry, and then you have biology, and then you have you know, life or whatever, consciousness, yeah. and then we go into astrophysics. And there's, it's also branching because, you know, where do you put something like metallurgy, uh, material sciences? So there's somewhere, again, somewhere yeah. in between chemistry and they're, they're not quite to the ball. They're not necessarily, um, not as complicated as biology, but just a different branch, a different direction. Um, and there's all kinds of other things that you can do in there that could actually be, uh, an alternative way of something that resembles life. Um, and maybe they actually already exist, uh, but we're, we're not looking for it because it doesn't look, it doesn't seem like that would be alive to us. Mm -hmm. Um, like, can we prove that, uh, a rock isn't alive? Right. What is well, alive and what can... isn't alive? That's the whole other exactly. thing. <laughs> like, we're starting to kind of not really know a lot of these definitions are kind kind of coming into question a little bit. Right. I mean, there's there's a there's certainly um, factors that that we need to factor in. Like, for example, um, time scales and stability. So if you look at a rock, well, it's not really doing anything. So to say that it ha doesn't, you could say that it doesn't have any metabolic processes occurring because it's not doing anything. But wait. If you look at geological time scales, so instead of looking at, uh, you know, you can see your heart rate because your heart beats a couple times per second. Uh, so you maybe can look at your heart for 10 seconds and realize, hey, something interesting is happening here. Right. How long do you have to look at something uh, like a rock to realize that there's actually a process happening? Um, we're talking Thousands about years. millions. Yeah. Yeah, millions of years. But in fact, those processes are occurring, and we have seen them. Like, we, we can't sit there and watch a thing that happened for a million years, uh, but we certainly see evidence of uh, what things, geologically, what things are like now, and, and also what they have been like in the past. Um, another good example is, you know, erosion. So if you look at this whole cycle of, Volcanism um, and sedimentation, erosion, the water cycle, and how all of that stuff is moving around. Um, absolutely, there's a process happening, and it's very cyclical. Uh, we understand it quite a lot, um, but nobody's ever sat down and said, "Hey, this is this must be alive." But right. it 
maybe is. Uh, maybe it's just thinking on uh, on such a huge time scale. Um, you know, and you know, people like to talk about frequencies, and a lot of times say it's a lot of woo woo kind of things because they're they're using the same terminology that the scientists use, uh, but on a different scale or, or, you know, different with different um, kind of different conceptual frameworks around it. And so maybe this is sort of the same type of thing where, uh, I mean, for as long as we remember, there has always been this other uh, concept within our um, human consciousness um, about the earth being a living thing. Um, so, I mean, this is, this is a part of all our ancient legends and mythologies and, and, um, you know, maybe it is, right. maybe we don't see it because we're, we're looking on such a short time scale where we don't see the change. We don't see the process. I wonder like that too. One of the things that makes me think about like rocks and things like that being alive or being conscious is crystals because crystals generate energy so if they're generating energy something's going on there's some type of yeah. possibly organic life or going to, or consciousness happening there right so i hear what you're saying i'm i'm not sure that i would agree necessarily a hundred percent with the with the phrase that they generate energy uh but what i would i would I would alter that a little bit, and I would say that they convert energy. Okay. So yeah, like uh, uh, because what a crystal does is it'll take a a crystal can like convert a capacitor. from yeah, well, it can convert from uh, from physical vibration uh -huh. to an electrical vibration is kind of the classic thing. Okay. So, I mean, that's what a guitar pickup does. Uh huh. Um, uh, some some of them um, depend. There's different kinds of guitar pickups. Uh, but also that's how, um, when they, when they first invented the, uh, the quartz crystal radio, the first type of radio that was, uh, um, uh, the first time that radios were, became portable in the fifties, uh, was because of this, uh, technology using quartz crystals, um, to, to, um, convert between vibration and sound and electric and electricity. And it's the same technology that uh, they use it in sometimes in wristwatches, um, and uh, like literally, there's tons of technologies which use crystals yeah. for that. And it's it's weird. Um, so yeah, you're right. But I mean, like, <clears throat> what's going on with that? Like, why why would that be? Well, it's physics, right? Yeah. But also, it seems like life, and we can't necessarily say that it isn't. Right. Because we don't really know what life even is. <laughs> really. Right. We Do really we? don't. We really don't know what life is. I mean, is life um, breathing? Is eating? Is observing? Is life consciousness? Is life just existence? Period. Like if something exists, it's alive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are things that are alive that don't breathe. Right. Right? Uh, there are things that are alive that don't have hearts that don't have circulation systems. Um, so we're, we are tending to come at it from a very um, anthropomorphic uh, or anthrocentric uh, viewpoint where really 
we we understand things how things are because of the way they are for us. Um, and but we forget that there are other things that fit the bill that fit that definition that are not like us at all, but are still alive. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. You know, I, that's one thing I think I like living in like in this particular time because there's so much we know and there's so much we don't know. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of mystery, a lot of exploring, a lot of things to think about, dig into, and, and it, it's just fascinating to me. You know, like like if we were yeah. to talk about this stuff, like you would say, like like 50 years ago, people would think we were insane, <laughs> or yeah. or people that, would be like, absolutely. no, no, a rock is not alive. Maybe it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, um, and then transferring oh, yeah. that over to extraterrestrial ideas, you know. You know, I mean, right. the whole universe is is alive. Maybe the universe is like our human body is is an organic system doing something else. It sort of seems to be. Um, and that, that can be said at the scale of the universe and at the scale of galaxies and um, at, at every other scale in between, like there's all this complexity everywhere you look. Um, and of course it can all be described with physics, but that's exactly how, how we work. You know, we're 100% reliant on physics. Um, so just by saying that you don't see biology in a, in a system doesn't mean that there isn't biology in the system. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, so is any of the stuff that we just talked about tie into your book? <laughs> is that going yeah, off um, track? Actually, <laughs> a lot of that actually does. So um, in the book I talk, uh, I do kind of briefly touch on a lot of those topics. Um, and then uh, a, a lot of other topics that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, let me just quickly look at the table of contents here. <laughs> so, I mean, um, I, actually, there's also a, 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 a chapter that is really about um, uh, logic and logical fallacies. Uh, because, I mean, the name of the book, uh, Fermi's Paradox, is bullshit. And so I thought that was a pretty fun name, but I also have to be able to back that claim up. Um, so I dive into uh, what is a logical fallacy. Um, so essentially, I could have I could have called the book uh, "There Is No Paradox in Fermi's Paradox," or uh, "There Are Many Logical Fallacies Involved," or whatever. So, uh-huh. so that's kind of why that's part of it. Um, but also, it's it's sort of a conspiracy theory in a way because guess what? Um, Fermi. So Fermi's paradox refers to Enrico Fermi, who was a physicist during World War II. Uh, But Fermi's paradox was not designed by Fermi, uh, was not stated by Fermi. Uh, Fermi didn't even know about this thing. Um, They just put his name on it after the fact, after he was already dead, uh, because he was famous, and so they wanted to have a famous person's name on it. There is... Um, it's a completely anonymous, uh, nobody knows where this idea came from. Uh, nobody has claimed it or put their name on it. Uh, but instead, they tried to make it seem like it was invented by Enrico Fermi, the famous physicist, but it wasn't. 
Um, it didn't even exist until after he was dead. So there's some really strange things going on here. Uh, I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, man. Um, so I kind of talk about a, a lot, some of that stuff as well. Um, but it is interesting because, you know, when you dig into the some of the more weirder topics, um, and especially when it comes to UFOs and aliens, you, you inevitably uh, will come to the question of, is, is information being suppressed? Uh, is misinformation and disinformation being intentionally generated? Um, and it seems, it seems like it is. Absolutely. I mean, and this, you know, Fermi uh, paradox is an example of that where it kind of seems like, um, maybe the government put this together and would tried to tout it as a thing and, and give Fermi credit for it uh. to, to throw us off the scent. Um, like, it's it's not uncharacteristic of some of the other uh, types of activities that the government was actively involved in um, in the nineteen uh, late nineteen forties through to the through well through to the con- present day. But I mean, yeah. you know, it was it was huge uh, in the fifties and sixties. Project Blue Book. Like, I think we all know that there was some cool stuff that happened in. Project Blue Book, but also some very, very suspicious uh, conclusions, um, yeah. you know, or whatever, however you want to say that. Like, yeah, Alan Heineck didn't exactly agree with what they were trying to do, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? I mean, he, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like... <laughs> That's, I like to talk about that when, I don't know if Barbara mentioned it when you were, when you were talking about our other book before Roswell. Yeah. Um, but like one of the reasons that we decided to, um, to call that book before Roswell was because, A, we, we wanted to kind of, uh, expose the idea, uh, not necessarily saying that it was suppressed, but actually, I guess it was. Uh, but we wanted to expose the idea that, uh, the UFO phenomenon is, uh, ancient and is a constant thing that has been with us throughout history. Um, whereas the government would have you believe that the, that, um, you know, Roswell, the crash in New Mexico, that was what started the whole thing and it was probably fake and blah, 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 blah. Um, but there's so much disinformation now, uh, that I think really, uh, after Roswell, when the army, uh, you know, made a, um, a statement to the local newspaper that they had retrieved a flying saucer. And then the following day was like, Oh no, that wasn't a flying saucer. It was a weather balloon. Like, come on, guys. So that kind of tactic um, really became very clear and very um, common and kind of the, the status quo in terms of the MO for what was going on around this phenomenon. Um, and ever since 1947, the, the waters are so muddied that you can't even really investigate a, a, 
any UFO <coughs> sightings um, in an uh, in a in a really objective manner because you don't know who to trust and you you don't know if you can trust even what appears to be the raw data uh, because there's so much corruption of this information. Right. Um, right. I mean, there's corruption of people too, but that's a that's a different. It ties in, but it's kind of another matter. Um, so I think that when, when it comes, when it comes to researching stuff and well, honestly, even just living life, um, you know, we need access to information that we can trust and that is extremely difficult to find. Um, you've got all these institutions telling you one thing. And you've got other institutions telling you another thing, government telling you another thing, uh, you know, look around, science telling you one thing. Um, but even then, science is very institutionalized. Right. And so the, insti- the institutional body that wraps, uh, that is, that science is enveloped in, um, is also not entirely trustworthy. So, you have to kind of do all the work yourself, right? <laughs> to figure out what's what, uh, which is impossible. Nobody right. can, yeah, it's, it's tough because to. you have all these different things. Like you say, you have the, the academic world, which is, has their own agenda. You have something like the Smithsonian has their own agenda. You have governments and the military that have their own agenda. Mm-hmm. Like, like, how do you ever sort all that information out and figure out which one is which ones are correct and which ones are not? Which ones? Are, yeah, it's just mind-boggling. Right, it's you know? it's insane. And and on top of that, we all have we own ha- we all have our own agenda. I have an agenda. Yeah, me too. I mean, <laughs> right? Like, and and you know, I try to, I try to be aware of my, uh, my my possible agenda, and how it's kind of coloring my, my perception. Um, but you can't really ever get rid of it. Uh, you can sort of, um, take steps to, um, to balance it out, I guess. So like a lot of the things that I'm writing about, um, I mostly start writing about things that I don't even believe in, um, because I'm just trying to figure it out. Right. So, Normally, when I'm when I'm sitting down to write a book, I don't specifically have an agenda per se, other than to learn about it. But even then, um, my worldview is colored by the last five books that I've written, uh-huh. so I can't I can't completely divorce myself from that underlying uh, agenda and the assumptions that I have, which which are changing rapidly uh-huh. um, like 10 years ago i had very very different apu- uh, uh, opinions and views on a lot of these topics i did um, too i did too i mean if you yeah. go back to like before i'll say the late 90s i didn't really even believe in, in ufos and extraterrestrials and things like that you know and now mm-hmm. i believe that anything is possible i think one it definitely is there, it has to exist. There's too much evidence for it. Yeah. You know, it, it's to now what, to what extent and actually what is it? And what are we? Right. 
Yeah, well, that's exactly it. And, and so that's kind of one reason where I'm focusing more on the old, uh, the old cases before the, the waters were so muddied. Um, and uh, so I'm one of my main areas of focus is, uh, is uh, Sumerian mythology, but also Hebrew scriptures, uh, because these are very old uh, documents. Yeah. And so I'm interested to find out what these ancient people were thinking about these same concepts, because they were literally talking about aliens. Yeah, there's a lot in the Vedas, um, too, about it. Yeah, in the Vedas, yeah, absolutely. Um, not only that, but uh, literally everywhere, it, it, all mythologies <laughs> all around the world, uh, where they, um, every single one of them has some kind of reference to, like, star people yes. or you know the strangers or you know there's all kinds of different the, variations the hobies talked it's, about it I mean, so many yeah. every culture has yeah. it everyone and they're in they're in you know the ancient carvings and stuff like that um so it's it's quite foolish to just write that off as yeah. just a story because even if it is a story where did that story come from exactly and, you know, that's like one of the things too like we base in, in a, like if you go to court and you're charged for something, and a whole bunch of people show up and say, "Yeah, we saw him, we saw him, we saw him," then everybody's going to agree that that is the truth that you saw you do something. So why isn't yeah. it the same with with aliens and what happened in the past? You know, all these cultures yeah. are saying, "I saw this, I saw this, I saw this." There has to be something. Yeah. yeah, and that's literally what they're saying is they is uh, I saw this. Um, a specific example I'll give you is um, this happens very regularly in the Bible. Now, we don't, we don't interpret it as an eyewitness sighting, uh, but we should, because literally uh, the book of Ezekiel is oh, a great example. One of my favorites, yes. <laughs> he, he literally says, this is what I saw. I was standing here. This was the day. It was the third uh, day of the third month in the king whatever's reign, and I'm standing by the river Euphrates. He gives you a date and a time and a place. This is an eyewitness account. Um, this is not a story that he's making up. Uh, like, that's that's a hundred percent. Like, how can you get that wrong? It's so <laughs> clear. Uh, and then he goes on to describe what he saw. Well, it's super weird, um, and it's especially super weird because of. Uh, you know, he didn't necessarily have the language to to call right. things by their correct names. And right, whatnot. he didn't have words like metal, probably. But, or... Yeah, but the really weird thing is, um, as he, as he, in the case of Ezekiel, he had, um, I, I mean, I say three or four different uh, sightings over his life, and um, by by the time he was uh, much older. And he had experienced these things numerous times. He now was starting to actually have uh, a more specific language for uh, for what's happening to him, and he was now able to describe things um, and really start to fill in the blanks. And it, it I, I can't really explain it um, right now, but uh, I will. I'll refer you to my other book, UFOs in the Bible. Right. Um, where I go through the, the whole process of um, the difference between <clears throat> Ezekiel's first UFO experience and his final one, and how he has really learned 
he actually learned the official technical jargon uh, for some of the um, some of the components of the alien craft that he was standing there beside. Like, and now we still know some of those words. Um, these are words like cherubim, uh, seraphim, ophanim. Um, but what we do is we, we, we don't know what we, we forgot what Ezekiel learned and we just say, oh, it's angels or it's eyes or like, like the, the translations, um, that we have in our existing Bibles in, in English. <coughs> and I'm going to say in all other languages because I know for a fact that the translation problems are extant in the Latin and the, the Greek, uh, the Greek translations, and those are the two. So the the Septuagint, which is the the Greek Old Testament, and the original Latin versions, uh, both had these major major translation problems, and those are the only two sources that anybody uses uh, to create all other translations of the Bible. So I'm actually going back to the Hebrew, and I have I've done. Uh, a couple, probably a couple of hundred um, Hebrew words, and um, really just did a lex, lex lexicon, lexiconographical uh-huh. analysis on uh-huh. them, and uh, try to sort back to what they actually mean. Uh-huh. And um, a lot of times it's actually really easy because uh, this word means you know whatever it is, except for in this verse where they give it a completely different uh-huh. tra- like meaning. What this doesn't make sense, guys. So I'm actually working on a, a whole new translation wow. of the Old Testament. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. I, that, that must be tough too, because Hebrew, from what I understand, what I know of it, is a tricky language because the meanings are layered in Hebrew. You have each letter has a numerical value, each letter has its own independent meaning, and then each word has its own meaning. I think that that's all bullshit and obfuscation to to keep us away away from the truth that there's Uh actually a real word here with a real literal meaning and we can know it because it's not that difficult ah so you think that's just Uh, i mean you're right yeah there is all that stuff and there's all these kabbalistic traditions um you know and it it gets weird it gets metaphysical it gets alchemist you know there's all these different traditions and i mean they're probably just as wrong as uh, the fundamentalists. I mean, everybody is interpreting things their own way and then saying, this is the way it is. Well, I'm trying to be like, you know what? I don't think that it's any of those ways. Um, I want to actually look at what the word means. Like, what does this word mean every time? Uh-huh. Like, I want to assume that one word means one thing. That's probably that. <laughs> the way to figure it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is to, is to look for consistency in the mm-hmm. meaning rather than looking for hidden meaning. Exactly. Now, yeah. I mean, granted, language is complicated. Uh, English is absolutely insane. You know, there's so many words that sound the same, have the complete opposite meaning. So it's, you know, maybe I'm thinking about it over simplistically. Uh, but I like to think of it this way. My approach is this. 
I'm going to try something. And um, if it doesn't all gel together, and if the if there is not a consistent, um, not only a consistent meaning, but a consistent um, uh, meaning that fits consistently into the consistent context. Oh. Um, so again, we're looking at layers. <laughs> and so if it, if it all gels and it works and it comes out in a way that is, uh, that is meaningful in terms of actually saying something sensible, um, then it's probably right. Oh. And if I screw it up somewhere along the way, it's not going to make any sense. Um, so far, uh, all the chapters that I've finished really make sense. And some of them make a hell of a lot more sense than the way that we normally think about them. I can't wait to see this. <laughs> that, 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 that's going that's gonna to be like a couple podcast episodes to talk about that. That is like a, oh, yeah. her, that's a Herculean task, man. Like how, many, how long have you been working on that? Um, I've been working on it for about three or four years uh, off and on. And I, it, you know, it is a long-term project, um, but I'm, I'm coming to the, to the place where I think I'm going to start to ramp it up, um, and maybe do like a Patreon or uh, something, a Substack or something, uh-huh. um, so that I can start to get uh, a little bit of support on that, and um, and I'm and I'm also starting to uh, computerize and automate the process. So okay. it's it's starting to ramp up. Cool. Are you going to release it all as like one volume, or are you going to break it up into different volumes? Um, I'll probably do uh, like a trickle release kind of thing, like maybe um, like I don't know. I was thinking about doing like a newsletter format where I do like a chapter at a time or something like uh-huh. that, and then uh, kind of on a, on so have that going on, and then also uh, maybe do. Um, like physical releases uh, on a book by book basis. So, like, for example, you know, if I get the book of Genesis done, right. that would be a good release, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. I would, everybody would want to read that. Oh, I, I hope so. <laughs> I know it's I would. Be fascinating because <laughs> the stuff that I've gotten out of it so far is just freaking blowing my mind, man. Wow. Yeah. That is an awesome project, man. Oh. <laughs> And we're, we're running out of time. I know you have to go. Uh, yeah. So before we wrap it up. I appreciate up, you having me on, man. It was uh, really a blast talking to you. Yeah, this was a great interview. It was awesome. I enjoyed the last time we talked, too. You're always great. Um, so before we wrap it up, the where's the best place for my listeners to find you and to get your books? And Yeah. Okay, so my main website is dimensionfold.com. Um, and, uh, of course, all my books are on Amazon, but if you go to my website, uh, you, you'll find links not only to my books, uh, but also to my Substack, my YouTube channel, my podcast. Um, and, uh, you can, uh, what I actually would really love is if you sign up to my, um, uh, get onto my Substack and subscribe to it. That way you're basically on my list and, um, I'm going to be, uh, I'm sending out interesting articles, um, and once in a while I'll let you know about a new book or whatever like that too. So it's a great way to keep in touch. Yeah, I'll do that. Well, I'll put the link to your website as those to this episode so my listeners can find you and get your books and subscribe to your, 
newsletter and everything. And uh, yeah, man, we definitely have to do this again. This was a blast. For sure. Okay, right. thanks a lot. Thanks. Hang on for... Oh, you don't have to hang on. I was going to play the outro. You can go. If you have oh, to. yeah. No, that's okay. All right. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guarantee. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon. <coughs> Change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.